First Peter 1, verse 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. In his play, No Exit, Jean-Paul Sartre gives his uh, vision of hell in his own perspective. He does it in a manner of speaking through a play in which there are two women and a man who are doomed to perdition and enter this room that seems to threaten no torment. Only in that room, they are sentenced to remain together in that room for all of eternity, without sleep and without the ability to close their eyes. All three enter with pretensions about their past. As one writer, Edmund Clowney, writes, that the man pretends that he was a hero of this great revolution. And he just replays in his mind all of the great things that he did in his life. The only problem is, the reality was he was killed in a train wreck when he tried to escape after betraying his comrades. The women have even more sordid lives. And in the forced intimacy of the room, their guilty secrets are wrung out over time. Nothing can be hidden and nothing can be changed. The writer's imagination has well prepared us for the moral of the play, which is, to put in his own words, you are your life and nothing else. The moral of the story, in other words, if I can rephrase it in this way, what he's trying to communicate is that hell begins where hope ends. It's when we come into this confrontation, when we're faced with a sense that things are not going to be all right and there's nothing we can do about it, that hell is experienced. Jean-Paul has uh, actually rejected Christianity, so we don't get our news of the afterlife from him. But I bring this up because that resonates with more people than you can imagine. Perhaps it resonates with you. You can get through pretty much anything if you know that there's hope at the end of it. You can withstand a brutal amount of punishment and torment as long as you know that in the end it's going to be okay. You take away that hope and you despair, you fall apart, and you lose it. Hell begins when hope ends. The Apostle Peter opens up this letter by telling a group of people who need more hope, who need good news of true hope more than anybody else. He says to them, you have been born again to a living hope. He goes on to define and describe that hope as being an inheritance that can never fade. 
In other words, you've been born again to a living hope, and that hope is going to be something in your future that can never be taken away from you. It can never be blemished. It can never be corrupted. It can never fall apart. Nobody can steal it from you. That is yours forever. You've been born again to that. And he goes on to describe the hope of Christianity. Why can you hope in something today as a believer that can never be taken away from you? Paul, uh, Peter goes on to say, number one, it's because that hope started and will end with God himself. There's nothing that you did to secure anything about it. You didn't do it in the past when you were born again. He goes on to describe this as being, as a result, verse 3, of God's great mercy. Meaning, it wasn't even you initially who reached out to God, but God in his mercy reached out to you. This was God's own initiative. He goes on to say that in his great mercy, he has caused us, listen to that causality, that action on the part of God. God was the one himself who reached out and changed you. Does this by causing you to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? There's one spot in the New Testament where this comes up, this phrase, and it's out of the mouth of Jesus himself. You remember this story? In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is what... uh, what Jesus called the teacher of Israel, meaning he was the lead scholar, lead Pharisee, in charge of instructing the nation of Israel. He was the the top guy. And he reaches out to Jesus in the night, perhaps because he's ashamed or he's wanting to do it in secret, and he begins to ask Jesus questions about eternity, and Jesus stops him in all of his surface questions and just gets right to the, to the, the root of it by saying, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't be asking me about all of this frivolous surface stuff. This is the issue. You must be born again, or there's not even a conversation. Nicodemus, I think, takes him literally, because he then goes on to ask, how, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he be born a second time? Can he? <laughs> he's trying to work out the mechanics of it. Can he enter like a second time into his mother's womb? Like, is that what you're expecting me to do, Jesus? Jesus answered, and you can almost see in this comical exchange, is Jesus' face palm, like, okay, back up. Listen, Nicodemus. And then he says this, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In explaining what it means to be born again, he uses these phrases, you must be washed in water and the Spirit. Most scholars believe that this word that Jesus used goes directly back to a single passage in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, where that, those same phrases are being used to describe the new covenant. Back in the day when God said, this is what it's going to look like for you to be my people. And they, at every turn, disobeyed him, rebelled against him, stiff-armed him, walked, uh, walked uh, in the opposite direction, said, no, God, we believe that we have the best way of, of living, and we're going we're gonna to test that out. God would eventually promise through Ezekiel, he would say, there's coming a day where it's going to be completely different. 
No longer will I tell you what to do on stone tablets, but I'm going to do a new thing. Listen to what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Jesus was likely referring to that promise, that new covenant promise, where no longer would God tell us external commands that we couldn't do because we are the same sinful people we've always been. But there would come a day when we would be baptized in the Spirit, when His Spirit would invade our stubborn heart and change it from the inside out to the effect that we now long to do what God tells us. No longer is it an external command that we hate Him for, but we try to do in order to, be, to impress Him or to be accepted by Him. But now it comes from the inside and it flows out. Jesus says, unless you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. That is, you must experience a supernatural transformation of the heart by God. And so when we're speaking about being born again, if you're wondering, have I been born again? Has there been a moment in your life where that happened? Where that moment changed you forever? I'm not saying where you became perfect. I am saying, is there a moment in your life in which things just changed, your affections, your desires? Maybe for the first time you were like, wow, I don't know what this is, but I just, I love God and I want to serve him and I want to follow him and I don't even know what that means, but I just want it. A born again experience, we would call it. To be born again means not to make a decision. It's not a decision that you make. It is an action by God upon your heart. Some of you might say, well, I made a decision a couple of weeks ago at Easter. You told me to. You told me to stand up. So I got born again because I stood up. No. You stood up as a response to that work in your heart by God. Our actions are simply reflections of what God is already doing. But make no mistake, it's God's supernatural, gracious work upon you. It's always God coming after you. It's always God inviting you in. It's always God pursuing and coming after you and his action towards you. Our only response is to receive. But born again, that's what that means. It's a supernatural power of God to change you from the inside out. Peter says, if you have been born again to a living hope, if God was the one who did that work in your past, you can certainly be sure that he's going to complete that work in the future. He goes on to list things like you've been born again uh, by the resurrection uh, of Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiling, and unfading. In other words, what you are getting in Christ, no one can take it from you. It can't fall apart. It can't be tainted by sin, not even your own sin. It can't lose its luster because of age. And not only that, not only is it God's work in your past to save you and God's work in the future to complete you. But even at this present moment, it is God's work to sustain and preserve you to make sure that you reach the finish line. After all, you are by God's power, he says, being guarded through your own faith. God's power caused you to be born again. It's God's power that is guarding you to the finish line. 
In other words, Peter is saying, God will finish what he started, and because of that, you can rest secure in your future. The point of this section is, since salvation is entirely a work of God's power and grace upon you, apart from anything that you've did or done or not did or done, nothing can deter God's plan and purpose and promise for your life. Not even your own mistakes. Salvation is by grace alone, and that, brothers and sisters, is our living hope. Your salvation does not rest upon your ability to please God. It rests upon his grace and his love towards you. And he's going to finish what he started. In this, Peter says, in this we rejoice. In light of all of that, we've got something to be stoked about. We have something to be overjoyed about. We have something to rejoice and to praise God about. There is wonderful joy ahead, is what the NLT uh, translates verse 6. There's wonderful joy ahead. If God has done all of this for us in our past and he promises to do all of this for us in our future, then in the present we can experience great joy because God is all about uh, committing his purposes in our lives. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you to your own devices. He will not leave you in the corner to fend for yourself. He is for you and he is walking with you and he is going to see the end result of your own salvation. The problem with all of this is suffering or trials as Peter puts it. He says in verse 7 or in verse 6, in this you rejoice even though For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials are anything that happen that end up testing or challenging your faith and trust in God. Anything that does not happen the way that you wanted it to happen that causes you to doubt whether God is still good. This is very broad. As we go through, Peter will start to see uh, specific glimpses of suffering, persecution, the workplace, all sorts of different things. But right now, it's just a broad umbrella. Bad things happen. And Peter right now is pointing us back to that tension that we live as exiles in Santa Barbara. We belong, we, we belong to heaven, but we live here, and because we are citizens of the kingdom in a dark world, we are going to experience some of that tension and conflict, and that could be brokenness in your family, that could be heartache in relationships, that could be setbacks in your job, that could be sickness in your body, that could be conflict in your relationships, that could be addictions, that could be pain. The list is nearly endless, as endless as is our brokenness and sin. Some of you are asking, okay, I know that God saved me and I know he's going to complete me, but what about right now when I'm suffering? Where is God in all of that? How do I navigate trials when they come? And Peter goes on to explain this by saying, you know what? For anyone else in the world that doesn't know Jesus, setbacks, trials, and suffering are a true source of hopelessness. Because what do you do? When your whole mantra in life is, I am going to, I'm going to make myself okay. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I am going to charge. I'm going to make something of myself. What happens when that falls apart? Well, so does your hope. Peter's right now saying, for the Christian, it's different. 
Whereas for anyone else on the face of the planet, suffering is a robbery of their hope. For the Christian, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom actually turns the effect of suffering on its head and uses it for your joy. How? Peter gives us two ways. He says, number one, your faith is being tested. Suffering causes your faith to be tested. He says in in verse 7, we've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says your, your, your faith is being tested by fire. He starts to use precious metals and gold as, an, uh, as a metaphor for that. In other words, you know, uh, whenever gold is tested through fire, it's brought into this kiln, the fire melts it, and the point of that is for, as it melts, for all of those blemishes and uh, 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 dark spots and all of those impurities in the gold to then melt out of the gold, and the result is, as you would understand, that gold to be more pure, more pure version of itself. Peter's using that metaphor to tell us what the Christian life is like sometimes. So that as you're going through suffering, it's, it's not a waste. It's not some arbitrary thing that God is doing to spite you or to be mean. He's actually using not just the good things in your life, but also the setbacks to make you who he wants you to become. Say, well, why doesn't he just do that in the, the affluence and in the prosperity in my life? Why doesn't he just do that in the good times, why doesn't he just only give me good times? Only give me good times and prosperity and affluence and comfort and security. Then I think I would, pretty, I, I would like him and I would do everything that he asked of me. <laughs> of course you would. But would it be real? When I first saw who would later become my wife, Brianna, eight years ago, it was before Santa Barbara started. It was in Carpinteria when the church was just there. And I had been leading worship on Sundays, and she was working in the children's ministry, uh, I think three- and four-year-olds. And every Sunday, she would walk down. There's a wooden staircase that leads, it faces the doors to go into the sanctuary. So every Sunday, I would walk out after leading the first set of worship, and she would walk down with a trail of kids. And the first time I saw her, I was like, oh, (laughs) who's that? Well, she ignored me every Sunday. And so I took matters into my own hands. After a while, I started to get the hang of when she would walk out of the classroom, and I would time when I walked out of the sanctuary to be right when she walked out so that I could walk by her nonchalantly and casually. And she kept ignoring me. So then I got really desperate. I do not recommend doing what I'm telling you that I did eight years ago when I was a sinner. But I did it and it worked. It's called stalking. You remember Ryan Hilner used, uh, used to be here, uh, taught that last series, Keep Calm and Carry On, which I did not heed. I was not calm. But him and I concocted a plan and it went something like this. I need an in. And we found an inn. One day, when we were at Costco, Ryan and I, he ran into Brianna. And through conversation, started to get all of this intel on her. Okay? For me. 
And one of the things that he found was she had a particularly hard day that day. She got in a little car accident and ruined the front end of her car. And it was a brand new car, and so she was uh, obviously visibly upset about that. And there were a bunch of other things that happened. So he comes back to me, and we concoct this plan. And this is where it gets a little weird. We found out where she lived. (laughs) I went into the parking garage, found her car, took a picture of the bumper. The two of us, Ryan and I, went back to Carpinteria where we had an auto, me- uh, auto mechanic friend asked him to fix the bumper. Thousands of dollars worth. He said yes. Then I learned who the person was, uh, uh, or I had a friend who was dating someone who was in the same apartment that Brianna lived, so I worked out a little get-together, a Monday night uh, party at her place so that I could, for the first time, talk to this girl. talked to her for about an hour, at the end of which, because she was starting to yawn and I was not, you know, I I was not uh, carrying my way to the conversations, she wanted to go to bed. But before she did, I was like, hey, I heard you had a bad day, heard you wrecked your car, I know a guy, he'll fix your car, take it here tomorrow, peace out. (laughs) And that began a long turbulent journey of Brianna asking, who is this weirdo? <laughs> but I don't care, because I got her. I bring up all of that crazy nonsense to show you what people will do when they think they're in love. You'll do anything. You'll be borderline creepy. <clears throat> I also want to bring that up to ask you why someone like myself would do just about anything that it required just to get a girl's attention because I was in love. But years into our marriage, when she would ask me something like, hey, could you do the dishes? I would say, what? And in my mind, replaying how hard I've worked all day and how I've been through so much and I just wish you would understand what I've gone through and I just wish for once you would wash the dishes. How could you ask that of me? I've been through so much and it would just be nice if I didn't have to do that. Why do you want me to? And I'd be replaying some of this stuff in the beginning years of my marriage. How in the world can a guy go from doing anything for somebody else to feeling... Like, washing the dishes is such a huge sacrifice. I'll tell you. It's because in those beginning stages, I was what they call in love. Only, I didn't really love her. I loved the idea. In those beginning stages, what we often call the honeymoon period, there was a a sense of elation. I had a crush. And in that sense of euphoria, I would do anything because it made me feel good. But it wasn't true love. True love would happen or not happen when that sense of elation, that sense of romance began to dissipate and all that was left were two people and their brokenness. And there was difficulty and grief and honesty, seeing each other at our worst and little by little in the small things, choosing over and over to do for that person what was better for them, even at the expense of self. There were times that I did that. There were times that I didn't do that. 
but it was in those times when it was a true test of self-sacrifice. You would do those things and you would experience a little bit more of what it meant to love somebody else. And you would begin to build trust and your relationship gets a little bit deeper. True love is refined through trials, not prosperity. True love is refined through difficulty, through conflict, through walking uh, alongside someone else and doing something for them even though it is at your expense and you might not even want to do it. And every little step that you take in self-sacrifice begins to deepen the pool of your heart with true love. Or you can harden capsule of your heart by refusing to do those things. It wasn't in those first few years when I did the whole world for Brianna that I experienced true love. It was, it was when things got real. Peter is saying something similar. and You don't have to be married or dating to understand this because Peter is saying this is what your relationship is like with the Lord. Of course you're going to do everything that he requires of you when you're blessed. It's when things are not going as you expected. It's when things are difficult. It's when actual obedience comes with a cost. That not only does it mean more to the Lord, but it actually forms you in a deep way. Every step you take to surrender your will to God begins to deepen your faith and your trust. This is that purification that Peter is talking about. You begin to grow closer to Jesus Christ. Hope is impressed upon your heart and joy results. So your faith is being tested in suffering. It's God's way of getting you purified, of deepening your love for him, of finding out and experiencing that if the love you have for him is because you just love the idea about him, or growing into a place where you actually love him for who he is. God desires to take you to that place because he wants you to know who he actually is. That he's more than just the hand that blesses you. He is your creator and your bless. Uh, he is the one who blesses, but he is also God in and of himself. The second thing Peter tells us is not only that faith tests Uh, is being tested in suffering, but joy enables us to endure that very suffering. Now, it's not joy because of suffering. Peter isn't saying, hey, when you lose everything, I want you to be stoked about it. He's not telling us to be like these weird stoics that just don't, like, pretend like we're not hurting. Nor is he telling us to be even weirder than that and actually loving when bad things happen. I love that I lost my job. This is awesome, God. Do it again. It's not saying that. Obviously, we grieve when things like that happen. We're, we have a hard time and we have the freedom to do it. He's not saying have joy because of your suffering, but have joy in the midst of your suffering. And Peter describes how that begins to look in verse 8 when he says, even though you don't see Jesus, you believe in him. Even though you don't see him, you love him. Why? Because that born-again experience, the promises of God, are already beginning to take root in your heart right now. Some of you as believers, you're experiencing this already. Even though you've never seen Jesus in bodily form, he is so real to you that you were willing to leave everything behind to follow him. 
Peter's saying, it's already happening. As you suffer, it is that joy that will cause you to endure suffering and so test your faith. And you will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, all that God has done and all that he promises to do fill us with so much inexpressible joy in our present situation that even though we are surrounded by things that ordinarily would have the right to destroy us, we somehow are not destroyed. We can somehow go through cancer and the loss of jobs and the loss of loved ones and broken families and broken relationships and setbacks and disappointments, not with a cheap, cheesy smile on our face, but a heart that is riveted by the hope that we have in God. It means that Christians somehow mysteriously can simultaneously experience joy and suffering at the same time. Joy and grief at the same time. James said, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. God will not let it go to waste. He will use it eventually for your own good. And let perseverance finish, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This is what is happening in Peter's congregation as he's writing this letter. Jonathan Edwards, preeminent a theologian who was writing at the beginning of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, wrote us an entire sermon based on this verse, rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, entitled the sermon Religious Affections. And in it, he began to describe what he saw in people or what he was seeing in Peter's congregation uh, as they were suffering, and he began to explain it this way. He's speaking about the joy that unseen love, he called it. He says this, The world was ready to wonder about the, this audience in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, perhaps even us. He says, The world was ready to wonder what strange principle it was that influenced them to expose themselves to so great sufferings, to forsake all things that were seen and renounce all that was dear and pleasant, which was the object of sense, But although there was nothing that the world saw or that Christians themselves ever saw with their bodily eyes that thus influenced them or supported them, they had a supernatural principle of love to something unseen. They loved Jesus Christ, for they saw him spiritually, whom the world saw not and whom they themselves had never seen with bodily eyes. In other words, what he's saying is Peter's audience, his congregation right now, his listeners, even though they have suffered daily for choosing Christ, it is not as the prosperity teachers teach it that if you follow Christ, everything will automatically go the way that you expected it to go. But rather, Peter's congregation, or perhaps some of you, on the moment you choose Christ, and in the little things that you do to deny yourself and to choose Christ, you are turning away from some comfort or security. And Edwards is looking at this congregation, looking at their experience, saying, even though they suffered for daily choosing Christ, they loved him more than their own comfort. They were able to see in, in Christ something that transcended their earthly creature comforts, and it was enough to move them with hope. And that was enough 
to cause them to endure anything. That's why people daily can give up their own lives to follow Jesus. It's not because it's painless. It's because their pain does not compare to the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. It's because they have somehow, by the Spirit of God, having been born again to a living hope, seen in Christ something that is so beautiful and so valuable and so otherworldly and so permanent and so eternal that they're willing to lose a little bit in order to gain a lot. They suffer daily for choosing Christ because they loved him more than their comfort. Does that describe your walk with Jesus? I'm not saying this to shame you or to make you feel bad, but to be honest and transparent with yourself before God. Does this describe your Christianity? I love Jesus because of Jesus. Or is your Christianity, I love Jesus because he is a great supplement to everything else that I'm doing. Let me tell you, you might never know the true answer to that until you have gone through hardship. Peter says that. Suffering has a way of making you understand and know where your true treasure is. You may not know it, but when your love is proven through trials, it's not only proven, but it's intensified. And with it comes that everlasting joy. This is why God sometimes allows us to go through hard things sometimes. Peter says, if necessary. Implying that sometimes God allows us to go through difficult things. He's not the author of evil. He didn't create sickness. He didn't create disease. He didn't create brokenness. But sometimes in his wisdom, he allows us to go through certain things that we don't even understand in our small, myopic way of looking at things. He does it because he knows that it will eventually be so good for us. You may say, what loving dad would do something like that in order to teach me a lesson? No dad would ever take their kid's hand and put it on the stove to teach him that it's hot. Perhaps some of you are viewing God in that way. You're going, through, you're going through some stuff right now. And you're like, why would God ever hurt me just to teach me something? I want you to think about this. Could it be that it's not so much that God is hurting us directly as he is withholding something from us that we want? I would never do that to my kids to teach them a lesson, but I would certainly withhold things from my kids that they think they really need and want because I know that it's going to kill them. The amount of electrical equipment and sharp blades and dangerous things lying around the, you know, just everywhere that Jude just somehow has this magnetic pull towards. I get him all of these soft little jingly toys and he hates them. He wants like things that kill. And when I don't let him have them, he cries. Do you ever think that we're that way sometimes in our finite childlike perspective on things that we feel like God is withholding something from us and because he's doing that he doesn't love us when in fact he's actually saving us from stuff we don't even see yet. Perhaps one of the greatest things that he sometimes withholds is his presence. 
We have a saying here at Reality that God's presence is of the utmost value. Our saying is, a moment in the presence of God can answer a lifetime of doubts. Meaning that you could go through anything we feel in life, but if you sense that God is with you, it can sustain you and preserve you like nothing else. You can do anything as long as you know God is there with you, speaking to you, present with you, felt by you. But what happens when his presence is not felt? When your trial is not a physical object or a setback, but it's the very absence of God. You ever experienced that? Some years ago, I remember in the midst of this season where things were happening all around me, the one thing that I needed to comfort me was to know that God was with me. Things were falling apart, relationships, my health spiritually, emotionally, physically. The one thing that I needed and cried out to was for God to show himself mighty on my behalf. God, if you could just speak to me right now, everything will be okay. And he didn't. And this didn't last for like a few days or a few weeks. It didn't last for a month or two. It lasted for a year. And every Sunday I would get up here and I would preach to you about the great glorious truths, about God's beautiful presence, about his wonderful promises, about his supernatural power. And I would go home and I would weep and say, but God, where is it for me? I believe that it's true, but, but where are you? You ever had experiences like that? I'm not, talking about backs, uh, I'm not talking about backsliding or lukewarm Christianity where you walk away from God and you don't sense him. And What you need to do in that, in that case is to repent and go back to God. He never left you in, to begin with. I'm speaking about faithful believers who have been walking with Jesus, reading scripture, praying in community, and all of a sudden, it feels like the light shuts off. And I would open up scripture to, in order to glean from it, in order to be close to God. And it would feel like I was reading bricks, man. And I would get into the quiet place in my closet and I would pray out to God and I could hear nothing and sense nothing and feel nothing. And I, for all intents and purposes, felt like God had abandoned me. What do you do there? You know what I immediately went to? I was like, I'm doing something wrong. But I wasn't. I was doing everything right. Maybe God is mad at me. Maybe there's some sin that, you know, I don't know about that's in my life and he's trying to teach me a lesson or something. What happens when God is absent? Uh, is absent? We see this reflected in the Psalms. Psalm 88, one of the most depressing Psalms in the whole Bible. There's so many laments in the Psalms, but almost all of them, without fail, eventually swing upward. Oh, I'm going through this, God, and this sucks, and my life is awful, but you are amazing, and I trust in you. They always have that tendency, except for two Psalms that don't do that. One of them is Psalm 88. It starts awful, it continues awful, and it ends awful. The psalmist says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Listen to what he says in verse 6 and 7. 
You have put me in the depths of the pit. You ever feel that way? In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You ever feel like God is sending waves against you? But I, O oh Lord, I cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you, verse 13. O oh Lord, listen to this. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? End. It's kind of awkward. So we don't sing songs like that. What if we did? Great is your abandonment. Why won't you speak to me? I don't even feel you because you left me all alone. Happy Sunday, everyone. Enjoy. I think the reason that Psalm 88 is there is because we don't know what to do with grief. We don't know how to sing about it. We don't know how to pray it. And when it comes, we try to mask it over with triumphalist feelings of victory and joy. The psalmist is telling us it's okay to just sit. God isn't afraid of your grief. He's not afraid of you just lashing out in anger and despair. And maybe you should. And then by doing so, you invite God into your mess to work in your mess what he wants to do. In the early centuries, some of the spiritual writers <clears throat> mentoring all of these, these people started to see through hundreds of these people that they were mentoring this pattern that kept occurring. They would start by being converted and they would be just so excited about spiritual things. The word of God, the Bible, prayer, yeah! And every single time, almost without fail, at some point in each convert's life, there would be a a season in their life where the light turned off. And what came so easily to them was all of a sudden so difficult and it felt like God was absent. Spiritual writers begin to see that, and they also begin to see it come up all throughout the scriptures. By the 1500s, one spiritual writer in particular wrote an entire book about it. His name was Juan de la Cruz, or Saint John of the Cross. He wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, where in it he calls this experience that we almost will always have at some point without fail called it the night of sense. He began to describe from the scriptures how when we first get saved, we are getting saved from a lifestyle of pleasure-seeking and self-admiration and self-love and self-law. And then a light shines into our heart and we see God as our new affection. But because of our immaturity, because of where we're at in life, we simply turn our self-loving uh, pleasure-seeking parts of our hearts from, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever it is, career and money, now to God. And so where we were seeking our own pleasure through these things, now we're seeking our own pleasure through spirituality. This is what the spiritual writers would say. 
And so now we're, we're chasing after God, but now we're chasing after God to get that high from our spirituality that we, we're getting from other things. And so we're reading the Bible and it's making us feel good. You remember that time when you first got saved and you're like, oh, I just want to read all of Obadiah and Jeremiah. This is amazing. Leviticus. This is the greatest book that's ever been written. And then you're spending hours in prayer and you're just weeping, crying, the presence of God is falling upon you and you're experiencing consolation. Light beams are shining through your chimney and you just never want to leave that place. John of the Cross would say from the scriptures that what's happening there is God in his grace so kind to meet you right where you're at. That what you need in that moment is pleasure to keep you going. So he gives it to you. And the Bible is fun to read. And prayer is exciting. And you feel the presence of God. And it's all over the place. And you love it. And little by little you start to grow. Even uses our weakness and our immaturity to reach us. How gracious. Then he goes on to say that there will come a point where the light turns off and spiritual things are hard. You ever hit that point? I think those points come more than once. And what is happening there is God is now seeing in your life that he wants to take you to a deeper place where you're not just driven by pleasure and fun and excitement and euphoria or the crush of meeting somebody on a first date, but he wants to take you into deeper places where you can see him not for what he can give you, but who he is. And so he begins to peel, painful as it is, some of those surface things. In fact, the dry seasons are actually evidence that God loves you. Perhaps you're in that spot right now and you think, what am I doing wrong? Why does God abandon me? He has not. He's actually taking you to a deeper place than you've ever gone before. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning as we transition. And I want you to think through this. Because perhaps you're in one point where you're like, okay, I lost. I've been losing at life. Nothing's going the way that I thought and I hate it. Or perhaps you're walking with God, you've been reading scripture, you've been involved in all of this stuff, but the light just turned off. It doesn't feel the way that it used to, and you're wondering if there's something wrong with you. Maybe you just got saved, and you're like, this is awesome! I want all of you, wherever you happen to be in your stage of life, to recognize that God meets you where you're at. He's not going to meet you where I'm at. And he's not going to meet me where you're at. He's going to meet you at that place where you are the weakest and he's going to fill your weakness with his strength. So I want to ask you today, where are you weak? Where are you feeling it right now? Your best course of action is not to hide your weakness or to push it under a shelf or to present yourself to God as this holy, self-righteous, great person that can handle life. You know what God loves more than anything? Broken heart and a contrite spirit. And what Peter's been saying this whole time 
is that faith is more precious than gold for you. Your faith, another word of describing faith is simply trust. And that is all you and I have in this life called Christianity. You can't make joy happen. You can't necessarily get rid of your circumstances and your suffering. But here's one thing that you can have and you can exercise. Pure, unadulterated trust and faith in God. Maybe you're just not there, and that's okay. You can ask him to help you with that too. So as we sing today, take whatever it is that you're anxious over, whatever it is that you're worried about, and instead of running away from it in despair, run to God in hope and say, I don't know what to deal, I don't know how to deal with this, but perhaps God, you do. And if you're just stoked on life and stoked on God and stoked on scripture, you ride that wave. And if that, ra- if that wave is run out, then you sit in the water and you knock on heaven's door and you fix your eyes on God even though you cannot see him and even though you cannot feel him and even though you cannot hear him and you knock and you seek and you ask until that door opens because it will. Heavenly Father, we just ask today that as we sing that you would accept this as our corporate invitation to you to come into our mess. That we would take as a signal of your love our born-again experience. And we remember that you have not abandoned us. You have no intention of forsaking us. And we ask that in whatever it is that we're going through, individually speaking, great or small, we just, having no idea what to do about those things, perhaps we don't even know what to ask you. We just want to let our guard down and bring our mess and our brokenness and our drama and our despair before you trusting that you will know what to do with them. And I pray that you would bring us through that process. And we ask, Lord, that we would not have any preconceived expectation of what you're going to do. Let that be up to you. If you want to take us through a season or you want to give us a sense of elation, you want us to feel your presence, or you want us to feel your absence, whatever it is, do what you need to do to make your will accomplished in our lives. But Lord, remind us today of your faithfulness. What every psalmist and apostle and prophet and spiritual writer has been saying for thousands of years. You are faithful and you will never change and even in the darkness you are present come now Lord and minister to us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus name give us eyes to see you as we look to you